Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell, and welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And today, uh, for episode 42, I have somebody who has uh, been on the show before and knows as much about the Dodgers as anybody out there, and that's Dodgers team historian Mark Langell. Mark, thank you for joining me. Sam, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, so let's get right into it. There's some sad news this week uh, about Ralph Kiner, and I know you were saying he's, uh, he's a, a member of the community out there, and uh, it's a very sad passing. Nobody has anything bad to say about Ralph Kiner. Definitely. When a Hall of Famer passes like that, it's somebody you just grew up with and throughout the generations since he stayed in baseball for so long. You either knew him as the uh, home run hitting outfielder for the Pittsburgh Pirates and later the Indians and the Cubs, uh, or if you watched TV and you had the Superstation in the early days with WOR, uh, you'd see Kiner's Corner, and he Mm -hmm. was an iconic Mets broadcaster. And so I grew up locally in South Pasadena, and Ralph actually – uh, went to neighboring Alhambra High School. And so locally, uh, there's a statue of Ralph Kiner. And uh, big news the other day, when a, when a local icon like that passes, uh, great guy and uh, great memories. Well, what, what is your favorite Ralph Kiner, uh, either story or moment or memory? Well, my favorite moment was uh, spring training 1953 when he's with the Pittsburgh Pirates. And, you know, he's a very successful hitter, but the Pirates aren't going anywhere in the standings. And he's made uh, something like 90000 in 1952, and suddenly Branch Rickey, uh, who's very shrewd not only with the talent but with the budget, decides that he wants to cut Kiner 22%. Uh, Kiner stages a holdout while the team is having spring training in Cuba. And one of the great lines was, uh, we could finish in last place without you. And so Kiner realizes uh, that Ricky's probably not going to budge, and uh, he signs the contract. And, of course, the other great Ralph Kiner line is, home run hitters drive Cadillacs. He made no apologies uh, for the glamorous lifestyle that comes with being a home run slugger. Exactly. And, and so how well did he do against the Brooklyn Dodgers? Well, in his career, he hit uh, 369 lifetime home runs, and I looked it up when he passed away. Uh, He hit something like 61 against the Brooklyn Dodgers, had a very good uh, average in RBI. Uh, But I compared the other teams, and it turned out that Kiner hit more homers against the Dodgers than any other opponent, which is interesting because when you look at Kiner's career, the Hall of Fame outfielder, He's not really considered a Dodger nemesis. There's not a high-profile game or anything where Ralph killed the team. It's not like Dick Sizzler, the homer, uh, against Philadelphia at the end of the 1950 season that knocks the team out, or Bobby Thompson, Mm -hmm. uh, or anything like that. Kiner was a solid opponent, uh, but he wasn't a guy like Stan the Man Musial that the team feared. Uh, They respected him, uh, but he wasn't one of those guys that had a a high-profile moment breaking the team's heart. And just uh, randomly before we came on air, I was uh, looking this up. Um, 1953 is the uh, first year that I came, and he was with the Cubs by uh, the time, uh, by the end of the season. Uh, And around June 22nd, uh, the best game I could find up till that moment was a two-for-three day with uh, two runs scored and also three RBIs, and, and so that was, uh, that's, that's a pretty impressive day against the Dodgers. Uh, but the Dodgers went on and, and won the pennant, I think this was uh, the day before when they won 3-2 in 10, 
and Ralph Kiner played the whole game, was the first time they won against the uh, 1953 uh, Brooklyn Dodgers all season. It's fascinating when you go back to those games because uh, just like the modern-day teams in terms of how did you make out, uh, when historians look back at the 2013 team, you'll be able to dissect 42-8 and uh, and everything like that, Uh, but sometimes you remember certain years for the pennants and you think 1953 and the Dodgers – you know, you have to check that that was a pennant-winning year. And so all the stuff that goes on in the regular season, that's great. But you say, well, did they make the World Series? And, and at least in the case of the 53 Brooklyn Dodgers, the answer was yes. Exactly. And, and going back to what you said about Ricky and, and Ralph Kiner, uh, it looks like uh, Ricky decided to, uh, to just trade him. Well, Ricky had that uh, Ricky had that reputation in terms of I'd rather trade a ball player a year uh, too soon than too late as far as mm-hmm. the value of a ball player. And you know, for all that Ricky got credit for Jackie Robinson, people don't realize what he did in terms of the farm system. And in the late 1930s, he actually got in trouble because he was too smart for his own good. He signed so many prospects with the St. Louis Cardinals that Judge Landis had to step in and say, look, you got too many guys under contract, and one of those was Pete Reeser. Uh, it was just they, they, he looked out and said, look, I don't think they're going to have a chance with so many people in your farm system. Uh, his idea was, look, let's sift through and find the prospects, uh, and the others we can just sell to other ball clubs. And so he had a, a great mind, and, and if Kiner began his career in '46. You know, by 52, 53, he's getting old, and, and his home run totals, you know, 51, 40, 54. Uh, suddenly in 52, he's got 37 homers. Maybe he knows something as far as either back mm-hmm. problems or aches and pains. He's not going to have a higher value. And don't forget, this is 20 years before free agency. That doesn't begin till till uh, 76. Uh, so he looked at these ball players as commodities and uh, their value. Uh, yes, Ralph Kiner was popular, but uh, Ricky was always looking ahead. What could I get for him? Oh, I'm going to end the Ralph Kiner talk uh, on his 162-game average and then a quote. And uh, his 162-game average was 279 batting average with a 398 on-base percentage and 548 slugging uh, with a 946 OPS including 41 home runs a year and 112 RBIs for a 162-game average. That's, that's pretty impressive. It is impressive, and when you consider uh, just the consistency that he had uh, back then as far as who else did he – is there somebody else high profile in that Pittsburgh lineup that was protecting him? Uh, he probably just had to do it on his own because uh, it's not like he was part of a murderer's row. It's tough to be a home run hitter for a second division ball club. You can always pitch around him. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, here's the quote. Uh, it comes uh, straight from Baseball Almanac, Ralph Kiner quotes, and uh, it's all of the Mets' road wins against the Dodgers this year occurred at Dodger Stadium. <laughs> well, and so he, we say uh, goodbye to Ralph Kiner. Yes, yes, that's a perfect way to to, to close the chapter on Ralph. Uh, well. Because it's episode 42, Mark, uh, it, it's just the way it worked out with uh, your next visit here. And uh, because of it, even though it's, it's not April yet, I just figured we'd talk a little bit about Jackie Robinson because we haven't really gotten to Jackie Robinson too much. And uh, what I wanted to start with was uh, some, some ideas about the story that are uh, slightly fabricated, slightly, slightly uh, different than what the general public knows about it. 
Well, when you look at what well, I was thinking to Jackie this morning, I was uh, uh, looking at a 1947 spring roster, and it had the Willard Mullen cartoon, This is the Year, you know, the annual optimism. And when you look at the beginning of spring training in 47, uh, it was sort of a big unknown because you had the major league roster and you had some guys coming back from the war and some veterans, but you also had Jackie on the AAA roster. And originally, uh, right after the war, when Ricky was thinking of having an African-American on the team, he wasn't necessarily able to say that right away. And so I think one of the things that was able to help Ricky uh, was sort of a ruse called the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers. And uh, because they had the Negro Leagues going at the time, it made sense for Ricky uh, to maybe branch out business-wise and have a uh, African-American team play out of Ebbets Field. Now, Ricky really had no intention of having that, but he had to have sort of a cover story because if you're going to scout African-American ballplayers, it's easier to have that in your back pocket saying that there's going to be this Brooklyn Brown Dodger team as opposed to saying, hey, everyone, I'm going to try to make history in two years, and I'm really going to sound the alarm. Uh, so it was really a way for Ricky uh, to go on a scouting mission without being able to r- reveal his true intentions. So... Unlike that scene in uh, in uh, the movie 42, when at the gas station, when the guy comes and, and finds him, I, I'm pretty sure part of that is true in terms of finding uh, Jackie Robinson on the road. Um, but he told Jackie Robinson in, in that moment about the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers that were coming to recruit you for that. That that he, he the ruse was on Jackie as well in the, at the beginning. I think so, because he has to test Jackie in terms of uh, to be able to see, just to, just to feel him out and just to see what interest there might be, uh, also study him more as a ball player. And then once it's time and you've got made that decision in terms of, yes, he could be the ball player, that's when they have the historic meeting uh, at Montague Street uh, in, Ebb- it, uh, uh, in Brooklyn in terms of now getting to the nitty-gritty this is what my true plans are, is this something that you could handle, and laying it out from there, uh, you really wouldn't be able to talk about stuff like that unless it was in the confines of Ricky's office, uh, and he had his trusted lieutenant, Clyde Sukforth, and those are probably the only two that were in on it, along with the Brooklyn Dodger Board of Directors, because Ricky couldn't have worked without them, and so it was Mm -hmm. a very closed circle of people uh, that would have known during uh, 1945, especially uh, October, uh, what Ricky was planning to do. Now, in, in terms of that, going to the board of directors, um, when what's the earliest that Branch Ricky voiced this uh, uh, want and desire uh, to bring to the major league team? And, and uh, at what point did, did he start with the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers when first talking about what he wants to do with uh, the board of directors? Well, I think, you know, it had to have been a test balloon in terms of many things because after Landis passes away, the commissioner, in 1944, uh, by 1945, uh, the war is starting to end and and you're looking ahead in terms of uh, the sport and everything like that. And so I think, you know, Ricky was very methodical in terms of uh, what the next steps would be uh, with the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers. Anything that would have been an expenditure uh, or anything in terms of public public relations or anything that would mm-hmm. uh, uh, be potentially controversial, he'd have to run by. And I think it's very plausible to think that he first told the board of directors about a Brown Dodgers plan uh, 
because, you know, it's the same thing in terms of when they tried to have football at Ebbets Field in the 1940s. There was a lot going on, and so I think he would just take week to week and sort of measure and gauge the public's reaction. And then what he probably did was he found somebody in Jackie Robinson, and then he would go to the board and say, look, this is somebody I want to sign. Is this something that you're, you're going to back me on? Uh, because I don't think he wanted to put the cart before the horse. He had to find the right person uh, in Jackie. The interesting thing to think is, and, and the thing that we don't know, who would have been the second choice? Let's say that, let's say that Jackie had gotten hurt, he breaks his leg, uh, he decides for some reason he doesn't want to do it, he takes an athletics director position after the war when he was searching for work, and so he never has to play pro ball with the Kansas City Monarchs. Would Ricky have been comfortable as much with his second choice as he was with Jackie? Maybe he would have had to put it off for a year. That's the one thing we don't know. Who would have been the second choice in terms of uh, trying to break the uh, trying to break the color barrier like Jackie did? It's remarkable. We can speculate all we want, and, and um, I mean, some of the, the the big stars of the Negro Leagues were getting older at the time, and uh, I'm not sure when did when did Josh Gibson die. Gibson passes away. I want to. I think in '46, uh, and you know, the, he was having his health problems by then. And you know, you can say could Satchel Paige have done it? Could you know? That's the fascinating part. Who would have been when you look back in history of all the people? Um, would it have been better to have a position player than a star pitcher because a pitcher only pitches, uh, you know, once every five days possibly? Um, Larry Doby was an everyday player when he started to play with the Indians. Um, who, who would have been the next choice if Jackie didn't come along? Uh, or the other thing is, if, if what if somebody had come along and it d- just didn't work out after a week or two, um, you know, what would have been next? Everything fell into place with Jackie somehow, and it, all, uh, it set the table for everybody else. But if Jackie wasn't around, who would have been the next player on Ricky's list? That's the that's the great unknown question. It's remarkable to think about. Um, but you know, in, ter- in terms of talking about the local, uh, you know, being from uh, being from the neighborhood, uh, Jackie is from your neighborhood, and and he did a lot of amazing things out there uh, prior to coming to the East Coast with the Dodgers. He is. He's born in Cairo, Georgia, in 1919, and at a young age, they moved to Pasadena. And throughout uh, his childhood, growing up uh, in Pasadena on Pepper Street, uh, not only at Muir High School, but then Pasadena Junior College, uh, and then off to UCLA, uh, the thing that people forget is that Jackie wasn't the big star at the time uh, when he was growing up. It was his brother, Mac. Mac was a track and field star, and he actually... Uh, won a silver medal in the 200 meters uh, right behind Jesse Owens in the 1936 Olympics. So, you know, not very many people have an iconic sports career. And, oh, by the way, my older brother is an Olympic medalist. And yeah. so he, he had Mac as an example uh, and somebody to aspire to. Uh, and so he, it's not like he was the only child or the oldest in trying to uh, set a path for himself. Uh, at an early age, uh, he had an athletic example in his brother Mac. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What What is his best UCLA moment? You know, his best UCLA moment uh, was likely uh, in the Coliseum playing football because USC uh, was the powerhouse at the time, and UCLA is still coming on board. And 
they haven't reached a Rose Bowl yet. Uh, they won't reach their first Rose Bowl until 47. Uh, but Jackie plays for the 38 and the 39 UCLA team, and there's a famous uh, 0-0 tie. And for UCLA, that would have been a big win back then uh, just because uh, USC was the dominant team. Uh, also in the backfield, uh, Kenny Washington, uh, who was the great quarterback, uh, he, you know, if Kenny Washington doesn't get hurt, who's to say that he doesn't make uh, history because he was a great athlete at UCLA, and so he and Robinson uh, were kind of a tandem, and Washington ends up getting hurt. He plays later pro ball uh, for the L.A. Rams, uh, but Kenny Washington sort of uh, fades into history uh, while Jackie, uh, while fading into history in the early 1940s, uh, when his athletic career briefly stopped because of the military service, mm-hmm. uh, becomes not only a, a sports icon, but an American icon uh, through his work in baseball. Uh, very odd for Jackie to suddenly be a rookie at age 28, and uh, fortunately because of his health, uh, he was able to play with the Dodgers, and, and those who saw him play say baseball wasn't even his best sport. Uh, right. So that shows with the track and the basketball and the football uh, that he still had enough left in the gas tank with baseball uh, to make a difference with the Dodgers. And all of that probably played into his game. Uh, he probably thought about those sports and, and the way he can incorporate them while he was on the bases, while he was he was in the field, while he was at bat. Yeah, and uh, not only have that and the three sports, but also the military background, you know, being court-martialed and uh, everything like that for uh, sticking up for his rights, being an officer and being told to get to the back of the bus and knowing the rules and and going through a military court-martial and everything like that. Um, The other thing that Ricky probably had in Robinson's favor, here is somebody that not only was in college and was in the military, uh, but at age 28, he's seen a lot already in the world as opposed to a young phenom uh, from the Negro mm-hmm. Leagues or somebody else that's maybe only 18 or 19 years old. Uh, Jackie not only had seen the world, uh, but he had somebody uh, that he was about to marry in Rachel, so he had that support at home as well. It's a remarkable story, and uh, I'll end with this. When, when Ricky um, let him fight back, uh, after after that uh, the period of time that he was supposed to just keep it cool, uh, is there a definitive moment that you think we you know everybody really saw? Oh, Jackie's you know Jack Jackie's uh, ready to come uh, come play and, and he's been uh, pissed off at what you've been up to. I don't think there's something high profile on the field. There's one play where he takes out. Uh, Davey Williams, but that's the giant second baseman. That's later in his career. Uh, I think maybe more uh, vocal in terms of quotes and things like that. You don't necessarily have tons of ballplayers being quoted uh, after the game, but he would begin to speak out on issues and things like that. Right. I think that was a way, uh, you know, the first couple of years, it's kind of low profile. Um, but if there were controversies or things like that, and you know, especially when Alston came along, you know, he and Alston didn't necessarily see eye to eye because Alston's the first year manager in '54. Uh, Jackie by then is is a utility player and a veteran, um, so vocally, I think it became more of a chance for him to express himself uh, because he still wasn't the you know he'd, he'd play hard and have hard slides and things like that. And uh, there was a uh, I think a moment when Alvin Dark. Uh, he and Alvin Dark traded hard slides type thing, but 
that was just one of those, you know, men will be men. Uh, Hmm. There was no fight or anything to it. It was like, okay, I know I'm going to get a hard slide from Alvin Dark, but that's just because I did a hard slide into somebody. So it wasn't like Jackie had any uh, high-profile fist fights or anything like that. If he was going to take somebody out, it would be on a clean play. You better not be near second base if he's about to slide. Uh, but you never heard of anybody saying it was either a cheap shot or a dirty play. It was just right. uh, uh, hard, hard, uh, hard-nosed baseball. Exactly. Yeah. No, no Pete Rose, Bud Harrelson kind of thing. Exactly. And uh, <laughs> or Pete Rose, Ray Fossey, even though that was more Ray Fossey's. You know, Pete Rose is like, hey, I'm trying to score. Get out of the way. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I, I think that's a good segue, and we'll, we'll segue. Uh, uh, away from uh, Jackie Robinson and and uh, the 19 uh, the 1947 Dodgers and and all those uh, those years uh, to modern Dodger baseball and I know you're a huge Dodger fan on top of working for the team. Uh, what, so what's going on right now? I know you guys signed Clayton Kershaw, but what else is going on with uh, keeping this team uh, going the way you guys were uh, you know last year? Well, today's a special day because it just seems like yesterday we were just a couple wins from going to the World Series, and the off season flew by, and today is actually the first day that pitchers and catchers report uh, to Camelback Ranch in Glendale, Arizona. And so the old optimistic uh, hope springs eternal, and this is this year and everything like that that you heard in Brooklyn, it's got to be the same thing with the Dodgers because they have a high-profile roster, and they're going to start uh, to have some workouts tomorrow. And the interesting thing about this year, it's going to be a new wrinkle because they're going to start their exhibition games uh, the 26th of February, and then suddenly the 21st of March they're going to open up the season in Australia against the Diamondbacks. Uh, They're going to be there for two games, and then then they're going to come back and resume their spring training. So this is the first time that they're actually going to go abroad and play two games in another country that actually count. Uh, and then resume spring training and acclimate themselves for the regular season. So not only is the the high hopes uh, for the team and everything like that, there's also uh, the historical and international angle because uh, we're going to open the season uh, in Australia against the D-backs in Sydney. So that will be a lot of fun as well. Yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. And I, I have to say I don't know where I've been because I did not know that. What, what are the dates for that uh, those games again? Well, they're going to play Team Australia on the 21st, and then on the 22nd and the 23rd, they're going to play uh, the Diamondbacks. And unlike other exhibitions, we've gone to Mexico and Taiwan and China and and other countries, uh, Dominican Republic, to play exhibition games. Uh, This is going to be different because, yes, you'll have your goodwill and your banquets and things like that, uh, but these games will count. I can remember in China... Uh, sort of the novelty of it all, uh, where you've had a bunch of non-roster guys come over, and there'd be you know cheerleaders between innings and photo ops and everything like that, and it was just one of those, let's have fun, don't get hurt, uh, let's make a good impression on the locals. Uh, but this is going to be interesting because not only did the games count, uh, but we're going to play the D-backs, and you know they they are our rivals. It's not like we're playing the Chicago Cubs or somebody that's. Uh, with, there's not necessarily a recent history. There is a history between uh, these two teams, and Kirk Gibson, our 1988 World Series hero, uh, is the skipper of the Diamondbacks. Mm-hmm. And the last we heard, uh, when we heard, when we celebrated uh, the National League West title, uh, it turned out to be uh, some of the ball players ventured into the pool 
uh, in Arizona and celebrated. And so uh, for some people, the thing that uh, you remember the most is not necessarily uh, Yasiel Puig and his walk-off home runs or anything like that. Uh, you remember the ball players jumping into the Arizona pool uh, celebrating the West title. So I'm sure the D-backs would uh, love to start the 2014 season uh, by uh, dunking us or whatever uh, uh, pool euphemism you'd like to use. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so in, in Australia, how many days are they going to be able to settle in? Well, they're going to get there a couple days earlier because, you know, it's a very 17-hour flight. And so they'll, have a, they'll start to have split squad games on the 15th. And so uh, they, they're not going to play from the 17th until the, tw- until the 20th. Uh, I think just everybody's just going to take a break because with the flying and everything like that, uh, there's just no reason to be able to do that. They're going to stop playing games in Arizona on Sunday the 16th, and then they won't play another game until Friday of that week, and that'll be uh, Team Australia. And once again, mm-hmm. that's going to be the major leaguers going over to Australia. That's you know Usually uh, you'd have a bunch of high roster numbers and, and right. guys you've never heard of, uh, for example, for the China series, uh, but this is going to be the real deal. Uh, and I believe that they're going to get um, three extra players. I'm not sure about this rule. I, he- I heard that uh, uh, there may be a roster expansion, and the thing for that would be for the pitchers, uh, because it's so early, I mm-hmm. think that they, they will each team will be able to have three extra roster slots uh, just probably because of safety, because since it's early uh, in the routine, I can remember uh, after the lockout in 1990, there was an abbreviated spring training uh, and the very first game of the season, Belcher pitched a complete game. And it sort of caught people off guard because, you know, you get caught up in the moment, uh, but you forget that, you know, these guys are finely tuned. And so I don't think they want to put any uh, unnecessary strain on these guys since uh, other major league teams aren't going to start for another 10 days. Right, exactly. It, it seems as if there's this interesting subculture of baseball developing in Australia, and obviously they've played it for for a long time, but um, at least MLB Network has, has brought us uh, some more coverage of of the fact that, you know, I guess it's it's around like five to 7,000 people that the stands take out there, uh, but, it, but it's an interesting subculture because they, they seem to be rooting hard the last time I watched something on MLB Network. Well, that's an international game. We, you know, when we signed Craig Shipley as a shortstop in the mid 1980s, uh, it was a novelty. Here's a guy from Australia. Isn't that great? And now suddenly, uh, he works for the D-backs. He played for the Dodgers. He played. He had a a, a, a very solid career with many major league teams. And what you're finding is, uh, you know, ball players from other countries. It doesn't necessarily matter if there's a, a great tradition of baseball. Uh, as long as athletically uh, they're they're good. There's a guy from the Pittsburgh Pirates uh, who was on a reality show about three years ago. They decided to find the quote million dollar arm, and no, you know you don't really play baseball in India, uh, but they thought well maybe there's somebody maybe there's somebody uh, cricket wise or somebody that's got a, a terrific arm, and the pitcher is actually on the major league roster and going to spring training. So uh, in the case of Australia. Uh, we take for granted now ball players from Japan. That that didn't occur before Hideo Nomo in 1995. And uh, as long as there's interest, as long as there's productive players, and because of the weather, uh, you may see more ball players from Australia come along. 
it's going to be interesting if we can see some more ball players coming from Europe. Well, you just never know. I think the the incentive obviously would be the economic gains. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're not if you're not going to be seven feet tall, uh, basketball is not necessarily your future. But if you are that height, people in different countries will look at you and say. NBA, and you may not even know what that means, uh, but everybody around you might sort of point you uh, to Madison Square Garden as far as where you should be one day. And the same thing with baseball. Uh, If somebody spots you throwing the ball very hard uh, or you've got power or something like that, hand-eye coordination, uh, you never know because of the Internet uh, and this uh, small world that we have now with communication, uh, it's going to be hard for a, quote, prospect uh, let's say in Nome, Alaska, or the South Pole, or anything like that, you'll you'll be able to find them if it looks like they've got the tools to play. Right, exactly. It, it's going to be interesting to see how it all develops uh, over time. Well, well, Mark, I, I appreciate you joining me on this Saturday afternoon, and uh, best of luck out there in Australia with the uh, with your Dodgers. And uh, as as always, you're welcome on anytime. Sam, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. That's our show, everybody. Have a good Saturday afternoon. Take care.